Welcome to Podcast Q with Matt Henney. That's me, and I'm taking a break from streaming all 80 movies and out on film to bring you this special episode. Last week, our live Q&A series, Q Conversations, focused on out on film, which runs through October 4th. I talked with festival director Jim Farmer and journalist Amon Ashton Atkinson, who directed the documentary Steelers about the world's first gay rugby team. We got a behind-the-scenes look at the festival and Steelers. So for this episode of Podcast Q, we're bringing you that conversation with Jim and Amon. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Henney with Project Q Atlanta. Welcome to another episode of Q Conversations, our Friday live event series about LGBTQ issues. Today, we're celebrating the 33rd annual Out on Film Festival, which opened yesterday and runs through October 4th. We're going to talk about the festival and one of its documentaries with festival director Jim Farmer and journalist and filmmaker Amon Ashton Atkinson. Hey, guys. Hey. How are you, Matt? Yeah. I am good. I'm good. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for everyone for being here. Thank you. Also joining us is Project Q's Mike Fleming, who is moderating the online chat, which is to the front of your screen. So you can uh, drop your comments in there during the event. And if you have any questions for Jim or Amon uh, during the event, please put those in the Ask Your Question feature at the bottom of your screen, and we'll answer those during the event. So with that, let's get started. Yes. Jim, congratulations to you and your team at Out on Film, put, putting together yet another festival. Can you kind of give us a quick teaser for this year's event? Well, thanks so much. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we when COVID hit in March, we were, you know, I had my little pity party and said, oh, the year's gone. But I said, well, you know, we can we can go online. So we really just spent the spring and summer transferring to online and pretty much the same format. 11 days, movies every day, a variety of films, filmmaker Q&As, special events. Uh, you know, we have a live conversation with Margaret Cho tomorrow. So it's just basically the same festival just uh, done in your home with a lot more flexibility and um, and more opportunities to see films. Yeah, sure. No, I, I think we've all had our pity parties during coronavirus. I certainly have. Most of mine involves liquor or alcohol or liquor <laughs> or, or cookies. So, <laughs> And I was going to ask you about the coronavirus pandemic. So much of the planning, I guess, for the festival has been during this pandemic. So how did that impact your planning for the event? You know, it's funny because, you know, I, I, you know, my strength is programming, but my weakness is, is anything tech. You know, like, you know, I, I'm still having problems doing Zoom. So I really have a great team behind me who helped me pivot and transition and learn how to be able to have screenings online and do live streams. And I think it helped, uh, I'm not going wood, that we were able to experiment in the summer with a lot of, uh, you know, film events and Q&As, hopefully to get us ready and sort of whet everybody's appetite for what we're doing right now. Yeah, I can imagine the technology behind going all virtual. I struggle with just the platform we use to do these live events. So, and I was going to ask you about that. So, this year for the first time, it's completely virtual, right? We have one drive in event. We have a 40th anniversary screening of Fame next Saturday, um, but that is our one and only um, live event. Everything else is virtual online. Oh wow! And so that's at a like drive-in, drive-in, like drive-in. Yeah. It's the tap, the Sandy Springs Tap House in the Sandy Springs. It's next Saturday, October. And how have supporters of the event reacted to the to the big change? I know that a lot of the fun was was going to the event and going to the theater and and seeing people and 
some of that community that you get through being there in person? Obviously, that's what we're going to miss the most, the camaraderie, seeing our seeing our patrons, seeing our filmmakers, hanging out, going to the, the VIP lab next door and really just talking to filmmakers and patrons and just bringing people together, a sense of community. But, you know, we're trying to we're trying to transfer that to what we're doing online. We're having some conversations, some Zoom, some live chats, really to try to be able to see everybody, engage everybody and try to make this, you know, as similar as we can to what we normally do every year at the Midtown Art Cinema. Okay. Aman, you're the creator and director behind Steelers, which screens it out on film beginning Sunday. Can you kind of give us a rundown of what the documentary is about? Sure. It's a story about Steelers, the rugby club I used to play for in London, and it's the world's first rugby club. And... It's uh, basically a story that kind of happened by accident. I'm a TV journalist and cameraman uh, working mainly covering news and I was uh, concussed before this big tournament Um, and I decided instead of getting drunk on the sidelines, I wanted to take my camera and try and see if I can make a mini documentary and I contacted the coach and the team and got their permission and I didn't really know what was going to happen and whether I'd have enough material. And then all of a sudden, um, all these amazing things started happening and the three characters I picked gave these beautiful and compelling interviews, um, which really summed up why this incredible sport and and why LGBT sport means so much to so many people. And um, I kind of just made it by myself. I edited it, wrote it, produced it and started submitting it in film festivals, not really knowing how it would go um but it's been a really positive reception and um i think at the end of the the day it's it's sort of this life-affirming uplifting documentary about finding a place to belong is something we can all relate to and and you mentioned that uh because of the pandemic you haven't been able to screen the film with a live audience what's that is that what's that been like that's been pretty devastating. Uh, it premiered in New Zealand um, where there were cinema screenings and it was a sold-out packed audience and had a friend there who was taking photos for me and, and that was really hard. Um, but I'm hoping one day we'll be able to, to do a special screening somewhere. But I am excited that people are just getting to see the film and it's kind of cool thinking that, you know, there's people who will be in Atlanta watching the film. Um, I've never been to Atlanta because I just moved to the States a year ago. Um but I, you know, it's it's just such a thrill and so exciting um, that that that's going to happen. So yeah, you know, uh, you guys were talking about the COVID pity party, and I've definitely put on you know COVID kilos uh, from too much alcohol as well. But um, you just kind of have to make the most of it, don't you? I like that COVID kilos. That I don't know. That sounds better than COVID pounds, which is <laughs> what I've on my fair share of. What's it? I think you touched on this when you introduced the documentary, but you were supposed to play in 2018 and, and then you didn't. And uh, I mean, how do you kind of make that switch up uh, from you were going to be playing to, Oh, you know what? I'm going to shoot, shoot this and come up and come up with a documentary. Um, I've always been the kind of person that just gives things a go and just sort of start, uh, just, I sort of start doing something and then worry about, you know, whether that was a good idea later. <laughs> and I just sort of, I knew um, from working as a journo for many years, like that there was a story there that needed to be told. And I guess I just went in there with zero expectations. And because it was just myself and a camera, um, when I did these interviews with people in the club who I sort of knew, one of them I knew very well and the other who I sort of got to know through this process, it was just me in the hotel room in Amsterdam with a 
tournament was happening. There was no producer, no lighting man, no other cameraman. So they really opened up to me in a way I think they wouldn't have if it was a, an external production company doing it. So um, you can see with Simon, um, who talks very openly about his mental health struggles, and he's this really handsome guy who is good at the sport, and you think, wow, he's got everything going for him. But he he sort of spiralled into depression when he fell in love with his great best friend who was very unaccepting, saying that it wasn't natural and that it was disgusting. And he talked about the fight he had with depression and he was kind of almost, it was almost like a therapy session. I don't know if you've seen the documentary so far, but you can see him working out his answers as he's talking to me. And I think that's what makes the film so, um, you know, people are, are connecting with it. Is, is that intimacy and honesty? Well, I was going to ask you about that because the film goes way beyond just gay rugby players and really gets into some some weighty issues like you mentioned and explores masculinity, homophobia, misogyny, mental health uh, through the stories of, of three players. So how did, how did you sort of work uh, weaving those into the documentary? Um, it, it was really a character-led story. So, they, so I guess the the that came about by picking those those characters and it all kind of happened by accident. I knew that Simon I really wanted because he and I had talked in the club previously about our mental health struggles and the fact we were both on antidepressants. And uh, so he took a lot of convincing because his father was in hospital at the time having surgery for cancer. His sister had just given a baby, had given birth to a baby. And then Nick the coach, who is um, she's a female, she's a lesbian, a lesbian. She is someone I started out um, with the intention of including in the film because you don't think, oh, a sport about a game and a big club, one of the main characters will be is female. But in the end, her story is one of my favourites because she gives this sort of warmth and, and this whole other dimension. And it all started because I was next to her on the tram after that first training session and I was like, oh, Nick, why did you get into rugby anyway and she told me that beautiful story about her grandfather which was in the film um, and I was like you're the second person and then she recommended Drew the uh, drag queen as the third who I hadn't even thought of and just by chance I was the uh, social media officer for the club so I filmed all of his drag performances previously so I had all this amazing archival footage to use so all these things that came together um, so I I'm a big believer, you know, sometimes things are just meant to be, and, and that was definitely the case here. Okay. And, Glenn, you know, clearly out on film is a showcase of, of LGBTQ representation in film, but outside of the festivals and, and others like it, how well do you think LGBT, LGBTQ people and issues are reflected in, in movies in general? It's getting a lot better. I mean, I grew up in an era where, you know, everybody who was an LGBT character had to die. It was always tragic and it was a sad story. And that was the 70s. And then we moved into the 80s where, you know, AIDS was was addressed. And, of course, in all those movies, the main character had to die. So I think we're just now getting to the point where you can have positive portrayals of LGBT people who just lead normal lives. It, it just, you know, sometimes their sexuality is not the entire crux of the film. It's getting better. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done, though. We still need to be able to tell more 
stories of the trans community, more, more, more stories of the um, African-American experience. But there's a way to go. But I am encouraged by the fact that, you know, we have made progress since the 70s and 80s. Mm. OK, and Amon, same same similar question to you. Uh, you know, Steelers highlights LGBTQ people playing a very physically demanding and awful brutal sport. But overall, how well do you think LGBT folks are represented in, in sports? Well, not a lot, actually. I think, you know, being gay and being under the LGBTQ rainbow, it's very mainstream. Like there's lots of shows on Philly and, and, you know, characters are, are becoming more prominent in cinema. But in on the sporting pitch, when you look at a sport like rugby, there's maybe you could count on one hand around the world the number of international players that are out. And that's the same case in many other sports. I mean, is that true for like American football as well? Like the, the big sports over here? Oh absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And um and it's it's kind of it's a surprise in a way, but I think it's also a reflection of the fact that we still do have a long way to go. And what I found in this film was, and when and joining the club, was that there were all these people who were denied a chance to sort of thrive and participate in sport growing up. Uh, when I was a kid at school, I was always black and picked. I if I was picked at all. Um, when we were playing sport, like if I couldn't catch a ball, people would yell out, you know, faggot, oofter. Wow. Um, when really it was just that I hadn't been given the chance to kind of practice. And in the changing room and the teachers weren't there, that's when I got pulled to work when people would accuse me of curving on them and, and things like that. So I kind of withdrew from sport. And, and I think when I joined the Steelers, it was the first time that I was given a chance to play in a film sport where I could really be comfortable just being myself and know that I wasn't going to be kind of teased or bullied or have people think differently of me for being gay. And it was this incredible feeling. And um, and I think one of the, the points of the film is it's like it's to show that we just as much as anyone else are entitled to our places on the sporting pitch. Um, but sometimes you kind of have to fight or, or forge your own way to, to get there. And this gay rugby um, phenomenon that started with the team in London 25 years ago now has something like 80 or 90 teams around the world, including one in Atlanta, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely the books. Yeah, it's incredible. So, yeah, it, we are on the right path. And, and rugby – your work, rugby has gone particularly well for you, right? Not only is this documentary, but uh, I believe that's how you met your husband, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we met at a party because let's be honest, you kind of join these teams to meet people. And um, I ended up with a husband. We, we met at a party and um, I asked him out on a date. And then he said yes. And then we worked the next day and I texted him to organize the date. And he's like, oh, actually, I'm kind of not really wanting to meet people right now. So he stood me up. And then, and he's upstairs uh, working, he's probably listening to this. Um, and then we kept seeing each other at training sessions, and it was sort of a bit awkward, but I'm very persistent. And over six months, I kind of wore him down and then eventually um, convinced him to go out on a date with me. And we went to the tennis, and then um, we were engaged, I think, like within the year. So, and then we got married within another year. So it was this fast sort of whirlwind romance that when you know you know so yeah uh wow so he made you work for it at first right he did 
Uh, Jim will appreciate the tennis connection there. So he is quite yeah. the quite the amateur tennis player. Yeah. What one of the you know one of the things I love about this film is that you know there are a lot of stereotypes about LGBT people. You know, especially that that gay men don't like sports, don't participate in sports. And you know, as someone who's played tennis for you know. 35 years, I can tell you that. And I know a lot of gay men who love sports, participate in sports, are as competitive as anyone. So I just love the fact that this song really, you know, showcases that and really sort of goes away sort of busting some stereotypes. Definitely. And someone's just posted a comment, Marky, saying, you know, so great to have films with substance, not just sex, drugs and disco. And I think it's like the same with the sporting club. Um, when I was growing up in Australia, the only interactions I had with other gay people were at the nightclubs and where you do get the sex, drugs and alcohol. And that's kind of the only way I made friends and it's not the best environment to do that. Whereas when I moved to London and doing Steelers, I'm oh, you can actually have gay friends and it's not just all about going to the club. <laughs> um, and that was kind of the first time where I formed like really meaningful friendships with with gay people and, and that's why it kind of changed my life because before that I, it sounds stupid now but I didn't really know that like that just didn't seem like an option right and, well, and Jim I think you touched on this a little bit but uh, you know how important is it for for not just LGBTQ folks but others to to see positive portrayals of, of LGBT folks in films not only in Steelers where it's you know it's a, a very deep it's goes deep into these three uh three people in the film but how how important is that for folks to to see that it's so vital as i mentioned when i was growing up in the 1930s um um, i mean as i said (laughs) i mean every every gay character had to die so it was mortifying to finally see a gay character in a movie and have you know that character murdered or had to commit suicide. It's vital. The fact that we are in an era right now, we can go and and see positive betrayals. And I'll say this, um, Matt, I mean, a lot of people who come to Out on Film and and now watch Out on Film online are from the metro Atlanta area. But we get people from around the state. We get people from the southeast. Uh, Those are people who have great support systems. Mm. A lot of people tell us that they come to Out on Film and they're not out at work. Mm. They're not out at home. So when they come to out on film, they get to see themselves on the screen, which which is the first time you can do that with your community, experience it together, you know, and have a great discussion with the filmmaker. That is so empowering. But it's just it's just great to be able to to come and, and be feel like, you know, you're, you're part of a community because, mm. you know, for, for a lot of reasons, you know, you know, some people haven't been able to come out or feel comfortable yet. So I, I like to think that, you know, out on film is a safe haven for all those people to come join us for 11 days, be who you are, see yourselves on screen or on your computer for this duration. And, and just, you know, try to have, a, you know, develop sort of community kindred spirit with everyone else who is participating. I, I didn't think about that. You know, I'd asked earlier about how people are reacting to not being able to physically go to films, but I didn't consider the fact that because the festival is entirely virtual this year, that the reach of it may actually be further and get to folks outside of Metro Atlanta who who don't have those support systems uh, that you talked about. 
That, that, that is the positive. <laughs> I mean, no, there, there are lots of positives of what we're doing. I mean, the reach is obviously bigger. We can reach people across the state, people who, you know, maybe have odd work hours, maybe people who just can't travel. Um, so it's great to be able to reach those people across Georgia who might not otherwise have access. And, um, yeah, man, that, that's one of the, the definite perks of what we're doing this year. Mm. Iman, you're a journalist by trade, and you. how did you manage going from being in front of the camera for your work as a TV reporter to being behind the camera to make this documentary? Um, it was a bit of an adjustment. Um, so I, I love uh, camera at work. I love, I'm a bit of a camera geek in, in my job. I'm a one-man band, so I go out and tell my own story. Um, so the camera part was fine, but when I came to piece this film together, um, initially, I was just going to let the characters tell their own story, but then I edited 40 minutes and it wasn't really working and then I reformatted my computer to make my edit suite faster and I forgot to back up the project and it, I lost it all and it was about four weeks worth of full-time work on it. And I just couldn't believe it. I threw the hard drive in the cupboard and forgot about it for a year and moved to New York. And then this Australian rugby player started tweeting all these homophobic um, posts and I was like, you know what, for this story, I have to finish it. And as a journalist, I was like, okay, I'm just going to treat this like a very long news story. I'm going to put my voice in it to drive the story forward as a narrative tool. But then if I have this random Aussie voice in there about this English rugby club, I have to explain who I am and therefore have to tell my story. And actually it worked out to be this perfect kind of thread that really helped me structure the film and move it forward. Um, and then... Uh, you seen the film, uh, Matt? What's that? Have you have you seen the film yet? Not yet, no. Um, so there's a there's a story I share um, at the beginning where I um, I talk about how I was outed at school um, by this uh, guy who I had one of my first sexual experiences with, and he filmed it and then took the camera to school and showed people at school. Um, and it's kind of like this very harrowing story I have, um, which led to my depression um, later on in life. And it just kind of exemplified the bullying that I got at school, which was horrendous and pretty much relentless. And um, telling that story was very difficult because I had, I guess I felt like I had lived many lives since then um, and that wasn't me and I boxed it up and I had to really go back and um, open up that box and go, did that really happen? Um, and my dad actually ended up going down to this this boy's parents' place and getting the tape destroyed um, and we never spoke about it since. And I came out later when I was 18. But um, when I showed my parents the film, um, my dad's a very big warrior, so I didn't sort of tell them that I was narrating the film and that um, I was telling my own story in the film as well um, until we watched it. And <laughs> that was so nervous um, to get their reaction and my heart was in my throat, um, but they loved it. And, um, you know, it was it was a really beautiful thing. And, and I've had such great feedback from people who see the film who, who find it a sort of inspiring story and um, I got um, a kid from New Zealand, a 17 year old who watched it with his parents say that he was having a really hard time at school and he was feeling depressed and on medication but it, the film sort of gave him hope that things can get better so I guess like that makes it all worthwhile in the end. Can, I, can I add something? Absolutely Jim, go ahead. Steelers was officially 
the first film that we accepted into this year's Oscar. Ah, really? Yeah. I mean, I saw this. I, 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 I didn't know about the film until I saw that it was as part of BFI Flair. And I said, oh, I have to see this film. So I, I kind of, I got, I guess, semi stalked you or like tried to reach out to you. I, I don't know how I found your contact, but <laughs> I reached out to you. I got this screener and we all watched it. And that was, that was back in February. Yeah. It, it was officially our first film. And we were just all very taken by it. Um, it's, it's a very well done documentary. I would have never known this was your first film. It's just oh, so well polished, so well put together. And what I particularly like about this is that it, it, it covers, yeah, as we've talked about, so many issues and so many vivid characters. I mean, Drew. I, I love the fact that Drew. You know, when he's when he's when he's you know when he's playing, he wants to kick your ass. He's like, I'm yeah. gonna. That's my mission. I'm here to socialize. Hey, I, that's whatever. I'm here to win. But then when he's off field, he, he is very much himself and almost a different character. I adore Nick and Nick's story, as you mentioned. There's just so much heart and what she goes through and her journey. And, you know, the misogyny she has to deal with, you know, being a coach in a field that is traditionally male driven. So, I mean, kudos to you. It's just very, very well done. And I'm excited to be able to share it with Atlanta. So, well, thank you so much. And on next story, um, what I found really interesting was the level of misogyny she faces even in the gay community. And I think like that's kind of an issue that is rightly so getting a bit more attention nowadays because within the LGBTQ community that there is a lot of discriminating against trans people and and different groups. Um, and, and I think her story was really important to, to show there's still a long way to go and we need to check ourselves sometimes. Right. No, absolutely. I, you know, have been writing about and covering the Atlanta LGBT community for Oh, a long time, 20 years now. And, uh, and unfortunately you do see a lot of that misogyny, uh, uh, racism, uh, mm-hmm. uh, lack of acceptance of trans people. Uh, it's, it's yeah. And still to this day. So, um, Jim, you mentioned the film, so it's, it starts screening Sunday, but something that's new with the festival this year, because of it, it's virtual people can screen it when it's scheduled or a few days after that. Is that right? Absolutely. What we're doing this year is we're dropping four or five movies every morning. And then you have, um, in most cases, 72 hours to watch it. And some people want to go the traditional route and, and watch it at nighttime and then maybe stick around for a live Q&A. Other people might want to watch it early or late at night. So we have fle- we give people flexibility this time. But each movie is up for at least three days for people to watch whenever they want to. Or if, you know, you love a film and want to watch it again, you can do that. So I, I like the fact that we do offer people more flexible hours and more flexible ways to watch films this year. And and talk about the, the you mentioned the the drive-in you mentioned some of the Q and A's yeah. so there are some sort of special events around the the movies as well is that right Yeah I mean we have right now I think we have twenty four live stream conversations scheduled wow. uh, my board absolutely wants to kill me for uh, <laughs> and counting I'm trying to add a few more so we have a lot of live conversations uh, tomorrow night we have a live conversation with Margaret Cho. Next Friday, we have a conversation with um, Kevin Williamson, who uh, is well known for uh, Dawson's Creek, um, The Vampire Diaries, and, and being the mastermind of the screen movies. So we have a lot of Q&As. And as I mentioned, we do have a drive-in event next Saturday. That took 
that took a little bit of time to get going, uh, negotiating logistics, working out, and getting the rights to the film. But we are doing a 40th anniversary screening of Fame on October 3rd, and it's sponsored by Lexus. And uh, we'll have a lot of we'll have a pre-show, some drag performers, some giveaways, and then we're hoping everybody will will social distance and stay in their car, but sing along to Hot Lunch Jam, <laughs> Body Electric, and, and get on their cars and sing Fame and do somersaults. You know, we're not liable if anyone gets injured, but you know we encourage it. <laughs> it's like a scene from La La Land with everyone dancing on the car. Exactly. exactly. Is Lexus providing the cars that we can sit in for the drive-thru? Well, yeah, actually, there will be Lexus cars there. And we're, we're still groveling, hoping that they'll give us a car. But, you know, they probably won't. But they'll probably let us, they'll let us sit in the cars. And then they're, they're keen on showcasing the cars. So it'll, it'll be a fun night. We're excited about it. I'm on, the, I'm on this is not related to Steelers directly, but I'm just kind of curious. So you went from Australia to New York just in time for a pandemic and the lockdown. And then you mentioned you recently moved. So how has the that's sort of a odd introduction to living in America. And, and then you al- arrived, you know, just in time for this pres- presidential election that uh, I'm curious sort of how uh, people outside of the United States sort of view what's happening um, so first I, I moved, uh, my dad says chaos follows me wherever I go. So I moved to London and then three months later, Brexit happened. Um, I moved to New York and then six months later, COVID happened. And then I moved to DC this week. So we'll see <laughs> what happens next. Um, it's been fascinating to be honest. So I, I do reports for the evening news back in Australia and 95% of my stories are Donald Trump's stories because it's just such a, um, fascinating fodder, if you will. Um, you know, yesterday I was supposed to have a day off and then I saw that he was glued on the steps of the Supreme Court and then the crowd started chanting, vote him out. And I was like, I have to write this story because it's just, it's history unfolding before your eyes. And I was in D.C. during the Black Lives Matter protest and I saw Donald Trump walk across the White House lawn in front of the, the church and hold up the Bible. Um, and it gives me goosebumps thinking about it now because, um, yeah, I've, I've literally been so lucky to see um, see history unfold. And as for what people in Australia think, well, I mean, this is my personal opinions. Um, I, it's just bizarre and fascinating and, and America has always been held up to be the gold standard of democracy around the world and we're just seeing these institutions and norms being eroded away um, and it's it's really interesting because my dad is kind of a bit of a Donald Trump supporter and um, you know my stories I guess I always highlight the crazy the the most interesting, craziest parts of what's happened that day. And he often is like, oh, you know, you need to be a bit more balanced. Um, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's 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 hard. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. I bet, I bet my uh, sister is a, more of a Trump supporter than, than I would hope. So we sort of, you know, do a delicate dance around talks of politics. So I, yes. I understand that. <laughs> But um, in, in New York, um, I, I was just out riding my bike during the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter protest, and I turned down Fifth Avenue, and in front of me, people started smashing into the shops, and that was when the height of the looting was happening. So I just started filming on my phone, and um, then the next night, my husband and I went to check out the protest. There were police cars on fire. 
people writing, smashing into banks. And we were like, is this America? Like what the, what the hell is going on? So it's just been a crazy time. Oh, absolutely. Jim, can you talk a little bit about the diversity of the films in the festival lineup this year? You've got, you know, a roster, I think, of 80 films and another 40-plus titles and shorts and things. So what's it? Uh, yeah, it feels like 2,000 films, and I'm always adding stuff. Um, we, it, it, is, it is always our mission to program, you know, with an eye on diversity and inclusivity. And I've said this since I took over out on film 12 years ago. If I'm just going to program for gay white men, I'm going to fall asleep tomorrow. It's not who my community is. I, I want to make sure that we, that I don't feel looks like our community. We try to have, you know, everybody represented, you know, as much diversity as possible. And I think this year, if you look at the lineup, you'll see that we do have a tremendous amount of diversity, you know, from opening day to, to closing night. You know, it's, we, we still need to see more stories about black Americans. We don't, we always try to get as much as possible, but they're not always there. Um, trans films aren't, are, are, there are more trans films these days and we have a lot of them, but we, we still have a ways to go before we get as many trans films as we'd like to. But um, we, the majority of what we do get are films by and about gay men, but we, we do try to work hard to make sure that the, the schedule is balanced and so, and people and represented so people can see themselves and what they're viewing. Okay. So as we bring our Q&A to a close, I want to thank everyone for taking part. And a big thank you to Jim and Iman for their time today. One last question to both of you. Where can people follow you, learn more about what's going on, the festival and Steelers? Um, people can go to our website, which is www.outonfilm.org, which takes you directly to our schedule and a list of all of our films and our Q&As. And Steelers is screening um, – the suggested viewing time is Sunday at one o'clock and then we'll have a live stream Q and a at two 30. So yeah, hopefully some of the, the key characters as well. Um, I'm on Twitter. If you want to look at my new stories at Eamon Atkinson, if you want to see photos of my dog and my husband, uh, go on Instagram at Eamon Atkinson. <laughs> yes, we love husband and dog photos. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you both. I appreciate all of your time. And thanks, everyone, uh, for taking part today. Stay safe, wear your mask, and don't forget to vote. Bye, everyone. Thanks again to Jim and Amon for joining me for Q Conversation. And thanks to all of you for listening. Subscribe to Podcast Q to keep up with new episodes and follow us at theqatl.com. See you soon with a new episode.